entered into the New Testament. And so the passage that Courtney just read was in our reading uh, in the story this week. And uh, so we are celebrating, uh, in, the, in our reading anyway, we're celebrating uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, coming in the flesh. If you are a children for Children's Church, you are dismissed at this time. So thank you very much. And Justin Shoemaker, can I ask you to grab that whiteboard and bring it right up here, brother? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. I'm going to be honest. Um, you seem tired this morning. And if you worked at Vacation Bible School this last week, you have every reason in the world to be tired. So if you need to take a nap, you just can, if you've got an extra seat there open next to you, you can just, thank you, brothers. Look, these guys match. They're like the stage crew. I like that. No, no, no. Leave it. Leave it. Leave it. Just leave it alone. I just asked you to bring it up here, not to start tampering with things. <laughs> um, anyway, so thank you. I just want to add my thanks to Joseph and thank, thank, say thanks to Joseph and JC. Lydia's been our VBS director forever, and, or since I've been here anyway, and then uh, she has uh, transitioned it over into the capable hands of Joseph and JC, whom we have all, if you, if you got to be here for VBS and watched them work, they were like a yin and yang with each other. Um, and jo- if, whichever Joseph was, if he was yin, he was a lot of yin. Um, <laughs> Or if he was Yang, he was whatever he was, he was a lot of. And uh, I heard someone, I think uh, Lydia might have said he was made for vacation Bible school. So, <laughs> so we, we, uh, we say a hearty amen to that. And uh, I do know of at least a couple of young children that prayed to put their faith in Jesus Christ this week. And so I know we're already following up with uh, their families. Um, vacation Bible school, many of us. How many of you went to VBS uh, growing up? Raise your hand if you attended VBS at any point in your life. Okay, that's, I mean, it's the overwhelming majority of people in this room. And so um, some of you probably uh, even came to faith in Christ during VBS. I know for many, it, it, was, it was just a, a, a faith-building time for you. And you, were, you learned more about your God, more about the Word of God through Vacation Bible School. And that's how we view it. We view it as an opportunity for us to give children uh, as Joseph said, seeds are planted, seeds are watered, uh, uh, plants are grown in the greenhouse of Vacation Bible School. So thanks so much to those of you who, who, uh, who worked uh, tirelessly um, over this last week uh, to make sure that that happened. And that was super encouraging. Take out your Bibles now, and we're going to continue in the book of Exodus. So we're going to flip all the way back over to the beginning of the, the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 11 and we're going to, last week we looked at four chapters, this morning we're going to look at one. I told you that Exodus is going to kind of be that way, that we would go really slowly and then all of a sudden we'll take a big chunk of Scripture and we're, going to, we're moving back into a little bit slower pace now this morning. We're going to cover together um, Exodus chapter 11. And so let me read, you follow along, let me read Exodus chapter 11. And, and it's hard for us to read Scripture as though it was our first time to read a passage, we, we know the story of Exodus well. But imagine if you didn't know the story of Exodus. And, and we've come to, I'm actually going to pick up in verse 27 of chapter 10. We're going to get a running start into chapter 11. And we've just read about the nine plagues of Egypt where God has brought, you'll remember, you know, he brought the, uh, the water turning into blood and the flies and the gnats and the frogs and the, uh, the pl- disease on, on the boils on the skin and the, the disease on livestock. And he's brought all of these different plagues. And now in chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart that he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you will die. And just so you know, um, that's not just a threat Pharaoh's making. 
he's kind of taking upon himself um, a God-like quality. He's saying, I'm deity, and if you see my face, you're going to die. The next time you see me, you're going to die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11 are a little bit of a parenthesis. The Lord says to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. Moses, speak now in the hearing of the people of Israel that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So, so God is telling Moses to tell the Israelites to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for their wealth, their gold, their silver, and their shoes, Jennifer. Verse 11, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses, do you remember who's writing the book of Exodus? Moses is writing the book of Exodus. Look at verse 3. The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. He's kind of, by the way, I was kind of great. (laughs) Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants And in the sight of the people, everybody looked at Moses and thought, that guy's great. Like, he's popular, right? I mean, this is is a guy that everyone's looking at and going, Pharaoh is showing himself to be insane. Nine plagues, our country is decimated. What are we going to do? Please, Pharaoh, let the people go. And even the Egyptians are looking at Moses saying, that guy seems to be the one with the connections to God. This guy is the one who is great. Verse 4. Now, we're kind of picking back up. Verses 1 through 3 were kind of like God talking to Moses in an aside. Moses, in verse 4, hasn't quite left Pharaoh's presence. Okay, so It's like Moses is on his way out, and you can see him like kind of turn over his shoulder, and he's got one more thing. Verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Think about the significance, the ramifications of verse 6. There shall be wailing and weeping and a cry and panic throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been. They've just come through nine pretty tough scenarios. There's coming a cry such as never been nor ever will be again. There will be pandemonium in the land of Egypt, but, verse 7, not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast. Egypt is going to be decimated through this, this tenth plague of the firstborn being killed. And it's going to be peaceful and quiet in Israel. Why is God doing this? 
He tells us right here, the end of verse 7, so that, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants, these are, this is referring to Pharaoh's servants, and all of these your servants shall come down to me, Moses, and bow down to me, saying, get out you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And look at the end of verse 8. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. That's the, that's the first time that phrase is used. That's the first time that, that we get that image about Moses. As Moses is leaving Pharaoh, Moses is furious. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why not? So that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Father, as we look into your word this morning, uh, I personally feel very incapable and adequate of communicating clearly the, the seriousness of this passage. So, Spirit of God, would you please come and help me and help us as we look into this passage to see the grace and mercy of God, that we would see your grace and mercy, and that we would also see the ferocious terror of your justice against sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a really poor quality picture here to show you that I think Jay's got for us on the screen this morning. Of uh, That's me, the one on top uh, in the white shirt. Um, in Egypt, it was about 11 years ago, I had the privilege of going to Egypt and, and um, doing some discipleship and some teaching of some Egyptian pastors. Some pastors from around the Middle East had gathered in the, um, in the country of Egypt. And uh, while in Egypt, I had the privilege to go to Gaza and see um, the, uh, the, the pyramids there. And um, uh, what co- becomes quickly apparent, it, just for any tourist, um, is that when you're, when you're there in Egypt and you, you're seeing the, uh, the pyramids there and then just kind of back behind me was the great sphinx of Egypt. I have photos of those as well, but I, I had a, they're really old photos and I had a hard time getting them. That, that was about as good a quality uh, photo as I, I could get for us this morning. Um, but what, what's obvious when you go to visit Egypt is that the Egyptians who lived 2,000 years ago took very, very seriously the afterlife. The pyramids were not built for living people to dwell in. The pyramids were built for dead people to, quote-unquote, live in, right? To, well, they were dead. They weren't living, but they were built for people in the afterlife. The, the, um, there, there was... Uh, there are a lot of other ways in which the Egyptian civilization worked hard to care for the people in the afterlife. They absolutely believed that there was some kind of life after this life here on earth. And so they built pyramids. And many of you know that in the pyramids there was, there was gold and wealth stored. There was food stored in the pyramids. 
Um, there, was, there was comfortable rooms, and, and if you were, you know, obviously the pyramids were built for the pharaohs who died, and so these were big, beautiful, opulent palaces, um, places for, for them to bury their dead. And the Egyptians perfected the art of um, embalming and, and mummifying people, right? And there, there are mummies in museums all around the world even today that are still in existence because the Egyptians were really good at figuring out how to keep people preserved for a really long time. And so their understanding of the afterlife and their understanding of death was very significant to them. And they even had they even had a god who was the god of death and the god of the afterlife. So if you're familiar with your Egyptian pantheon, does anybody want to, anybody remember the name of the god? He was a he had a, the head of a dog. Anybody remember the you remember? Anubis, you're exactly right. It was the god of Anubis, the Clayton Peavy. There you go. He's not just good looking, ladies and gentlemen. He's smart too. Yeah, the god of Anubis, the god Anubis. And the god Anubis was one of the primary, I mean, he was one of the most significant gods in Egyptian culture. So you had like the Nile River, and that was a really significant god in the Egyptian pantheon. But Anubis was right up there as one of the most important and powerful gods because he was the god of death and the god of the afterlife. And you remember that throughout the, um, we talked last week about as we went through the nine different plagues, that what God was doing is he wasn't just randomly coming up with ways to be annoying to the Egyptians. Uh, let's see, flies bother people. I'll send flies. And what, what else would really bother them? Oh, boils, that, that, I'm sure they won't like that. And, and gnats, that's not what God was doing. What God was doing was eat with each and every one of those nine plagues is he was confronting one of the false gods in the Egyptian God structure, right? The totem pole of the Egyptian gods, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And what God was doing was saying, I am the one true God and all of your other gods are as nothing. And here what God is doing in this 10th plague is he is sticking it to the god Anubis. He's saying, you have a god of death in the afterlife, but I'm going to show you that I am in control of everything, including death, and I'm going to bring death in a way that can only be described, that can only be accounted for by my hand. Right? Like, so if boils... If everybody gets boils and some people die of boils, well, you can say, well, there was some kind of outbreak. And, and, or, or even if just a bunch of people kind of randomly die, well, maybe there was some kind of disease or that sort of thing. But what God is doing is he's saying the firstborn of everything is going to die. And that can only be explained because God himself, brothers and sisters, and this, we're going to grapple with some really challenging things this morning. But God himself, the I am, is the one who says, I'm going to do this, and I'm taking responsibility for the death of the Egyptians. Look in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11. God says, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And in verse 4, the Lord says, I will go out, and every firstborn shall die. This morning, as we look into this passage, I want us to see, my main, the main point is this. I want us to look at the justice of God, but God is just to his children and to his enemies. God is just, and God is always just to everyone. He is just to those on whom he has mercy, and he is just on those to whom he brings punishment and condemnation. God 
is always just. And, and when we look at this passage this morning, this is one of those places in Scripture where we might be inclined, we might be tempted to want to apologize for God a little bit. And kind of be like, yeah, doesn't seem like the punishment meets the crime, does it? God, he was having a bad day. He'd been worked, you know, nine times Pharaoh had resisted him, and God's kind of fed up with Pharaoh, and so maybe God goes a little over the top with the whole killing. I mean, especially there would have been a lot of young children who perished in this. And so, man, I'm not exactly sure how to explain that about God, but maybe he was just having a bad day. Let's, you know, he does a lot of good things. We'll allow him this on occasion. And I just want to assure you that the Bible is going to give us very helpful answers to know that God knew exactly what he was doing, and he was absolutely just and righteous in doing exactly what he was doing. He was just and righteous in giving grace and mercy to his people, and he was just and righteous in bringing this severe punishment against the Egyptians. So the main point this morning is this. God is just to his children and his enemies. And I'm gonna, we're going to look at four things, four uh, observations we'll make in this passage this morning. First of all, I want us to see that God is gracious and merciful to Israel. God is gracious and merciful to Israel. And as you read through this, just even just this chapter, and brothers and sisters, next week we're going to talk about the Passover, and then we're, uh, we're actually going to talk about, we're going to talk again about, the, if you look ahead in your Bible in chapter 12, verse 29, the 10th plague, death of the firstborn, we're going to come back to it and cover it uh, at, an, at another angle, and then we're going to talk about the Exodus, that sort of thing. But chapter 11 is giving us kind of a, a pre-show. It's, it's, it's explaining some things to us, I believe, about the justice of God. And so we're going we're gonna to cover some of this again in weeks to come. But I, I want us to see that, uh, that God is being gracious and merciful to his people in this. Obviously, in the fact that he's delivering them from Egypt, but look in verses 2 and following. Speak now in the, in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Um, so, so here's what's happening. God is telling Moses, Moses, go talk to the men and, men and women of Israel, and they're supposed to go to their Egyptian neighbors and go into their houses and ask for stuff. And I want them to go do that, and I'm going to work it out so that the Egyptians are so eager to get rid of you that they're going to give you their stuff. Now imagine, imagine someone coming to you and saying, okay, the wealthiest person in Dalhart, you're supposed to go into their house and into their bank account, and you can, just, you can ask for stuff, and they're, they're going to give it to you. I mean, can you imagine that kind of shopping spree, right? The, the, the person is the same size as you. All their clothes fit, right? And it's the kind of clothes that you like, shoes fit. You know, what, okay, and you get to go in, and you get to ask for it, and they're like, yeah, whatever, my TV, my rings, my watches, my gun collection. Man, are you kidding me? And, and so, and, and they're like, yeah, take it. Take, and in fact, here, I've got more. I've got more here. I've got a whole other gun safe in the garage you didn't know about. Take, get, go. Some scholars believe that part of what's happening here is that the people of Egypt have been enslaved and working for the people, excuse me, the people of Israel have been enslaved and working for Egypt for 400 years 
they're finally getting their dues, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of getting their payment, 400 years of slavery. Um, I'm sure that whatever money they walked out of Egypt with still could not, you know, didn't earn the wages that they had earned over the course of 400 years. But God is giving them favor. And what God is doing, God is actually using this to send his people out, his people who are going to go and be his people in his place, in his presence. And he's sending them out with the resources to become a nation, with the resources to, to live and to buy and to trade. We're going to see that those same resources here real soon at the foot of Mount Sinai are going to get them in a lot of trouble because they're going to take some of this gold and some of the silver and they're going to throw it into a fire and a golden calf is going to come out, right? Well, the, the, we take God's blessings and we can use them for good and we can use them for ill. There's a little um, side note there. But God, God, is, God is giving his people, God is giving his people these, these great, uh, this great financial wealth. And, and God is giving Moses a, a stature, a favor in the land of Egypt and in Israel that can only be explained by his, his establishing Moses as this great man. The, Moses has been the voice of God to Pharaoh and to the people. Moses is the one who says, this is going to happen, and then it happens. And so all the Egyptians are watching this guy, and after plague two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They're like, this guy is unstoppable. Like we respect Moses. He is, he is a man of, surely the Egyptians, as Moses would have walked around the land of Egypt and walked up into the palaces of Pharaoh, people would have known who he was and would have known that this is a great man. In fact, we have respect for him. We're giving him favor. And so Moses is one who is considered to be very great. And here in the nation of Israel, God is being gracious, and he's being merciful to his people. God is being both gracious and merciful. And do you understand the difference between grace and mercy? A lot of times we use them synonymously. We, we, we think of them as being the exact same thing. But do you know that grace and mercy aren't the exact same thing? They're actually not equivalents. They're not, they're not synonyms with each other. To act graciously towards someone and to act mercifully towards someone is not the same thing. Mercy is me not getting what I do deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is me getting what I don't deserve. Follow? Mercy is me not getting what I do deserve. So, for instance, I'm driving 95 miles an hour from here to uh, Amarillo, and a police officer pulls me over. If he does not give me a ticket, he is being merciful. Now, in that moment, he's not being just either, but he's not God. We're not going to hold him to that same standard, but he's being merciful. He's not giving. He should say, you have to pay $300 for speeding. Instead, he says, uh, you know, I'm just going to give you a warning. He's being merciful. If he pulls me over and then he gives me $300, that's being, yeah, that's being, that's being foolishly, that's being gracious. He's giving me something that I've actually earned the opposite of. I've, I have, I deserve to pay. And not only do I not pay by his mercy, but now I actually walk away with money by his grace. And brothers and sisters, do you understand do you understand that when God deals with us, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we turn from our sin and put faith in, in Jesus, God deals with you that way, with both mercy and grace. 
See, you and I sin against the holy God. You have sinned enough today to earn separation from God for eternity. You've done that today. You've sinned. You've broken God's commands. You've broken God's laws. And I know there's a lot of nice, sweet people out here, but the nicest and sweetest of you have earned punishment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 5 describes us as weak in our trespasses and sins, as sinful against God, as enemies of God. That's the word that's used in Romans chapter 5, that you were an enemy of God. And it's hard for us, especially some of us who maybe grew up in Christianity, we were, we were saved at a young age, it's hard for us to actually remember that we were enemies of God, but you are described as being an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not some nice thing that you add to your already good, upstanding, moral, Texas lifestyle, and you think, well, you know what, it'd be good for me to go to church sometimes as well. That's a that's, kind of a, that's what we good people do. No, you were hopeless and you deserved eternal punishment because of your sin. Every single one of us. That's what we deserve. We have earned separation. But God was, for those who are, put their faith in Christ, we're going to talk about this extensively here in just a minute. But when you put faith in Christ, now God deals with you the way he deals with Christ. He gives you mercy. He does not give you what you earned. You went 95 miles an hour and you should pay $300. And, and God comes in and says, if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will pay that $300 for you. You don't have to pay it. God deals mercifully with his people. But brothers and sisters, you know this to be true. God also deals graciously with you. And not only does he not give you what you deserve, but you know what? Right now you're sitting here breathing. So he's dealing graciously with you. It's not amazing that God would punish sin. It's amazing that we aren't all little puffs of smoke. And I'm being really serious. Like that's the, the story of the Bible portrays it that way. God is, God is gracious and merciful to his people Israel. Not only is he not, not, only is he not giving Israel what Israel deserves, Israel is a sinful nation just like Egypt is a sinful nation. He's not giving them what they deserve. He is also being very, very gracious with, with both Israel um, and with Moses. God is, God is gracious to his people. Why is God being gracious to Israel? Why is God being gracious to Israel but not being gracious in the same way to Egypt? Why is God gracious to Israel? Why is Israel walking out of the store with a shopping spree, right? Like you, you get to go to whatever your favorite store is, Cabela's. I know, that's for most of you, it's Cabela's. And you get, to, I mean, you, as much as you can take out of the store is yours. Why is God dealing with Israel that way and in the same breath telling Israel, all of your firstborn will die? Because to you and me, we, we look at that, we read that, and we're, we're, we're inclined to say that God isn't fair. That's ain't right. You're being, like, like you're plundering one nation to enrich another nation, and then you're going to punish the other nation. Like, what's going on here? Brothers and sisters, you, yeah, we have to remember that Israel's not some random nation and Egypt some other random nation. 
the nation of Israel is the nation with whom God has established a covenant. We've talked about this a number of times. But God looked down onto the world and he saw this man named Abraham and through reasons known only to God, he chose Abraham. And through Abraham came Isaac and through Isaac came Jacob and Jacob's name was changed to Israel and through Israel's 12 sons comes this nation that's here in Egypt. And God had made a promise to Abraham I will set my covenant, Hesed, loyal love on you. You will be, I will be your God. You will be my people. Your people are my nation. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. I'm making a special, unique, one-on-one promise with the nation of Israel. God has made a promise, and that, co- that, that covenant, that promise, you'll remember, was sealed in blood. You remember when Abraham had to lay out the, the, uh, the animals and cut them in half, and, and he and God walked through, and there were bloody animals on either side? It was a covenant established in blood. God had made a promise with his people using blood to say, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people and, and I am going to keep you. I'm choosing you. Of all the nations in the world, I'm choosing Israel. And so when we see God interacting graciously and mercifully with Israel, it is not because Israel is so noble and so righteous and so well-deserved and earning of God's favor. It's because God chose them. You might think, well, well that's, that's unfair for God to choose some and not to choose others. But remember, well, we'll get to Romans 9 here in a minute. Well, let me carry on with my notes. It's all, it's all in here. If I, keep, if, I keep, if I stay on track, I will be okay. Why is God gracious to Israel? In, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, God says this. You are, and, and this is important if you want to turn there, if you want to write this down. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, explains why God chooses Israel. God says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? The Bible is just making it clear. All the peoples on the face of the earth, God chose you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. Verse 8 is going to give us the answer as to why God chose Israel. It is because the Lord loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Yeah, but, but because he loves you. For you were the fewest of all people. Excuse me, verse 18. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the covenant that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. What is is Egypt? Egypt is a nation who hates him. And what is God getting ready to do here in Exodus chapter 3, or uh, Exodus 11, 12, and 13? Getting ready to repay them to their face. Um, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Brothers and sisters, God has established uh, a covenant, a promise, a relationship with his chosen people. He, 
He chooses Israel out of all the other nations to be his people. He sets his love on his people for his own glory. God is gracious and merciful with Egypt, or excuse me, with Israel. The second observation is this God is just with Egypt. God is just with Egypt. And this is, like I said, this is one of those passages that when we read can make us a little bit uncomfortable. We see God's judgment being enacted. Verse 4, God says, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. And there's no respect. I'm not just trying to get at Pharaoh like everyone's firstborn. Moses describes it this way. From Pharaoh who sits on the throne, from the highest, most powerful, most insulated, most protected person in the land of Egypt, to the slave girl who is behind the hand mill. Imagine a slave who all she does is, is grind at the mill and she has just a little shack. She may not even have a husband, but she has a child. She's a little slave girl who's behind the mill, and she has a firstborn. Everyone, even the cattle, the firstborn, like God is doing a thing. God is bringing his wrath against sin. And I think sometimes we have the wrong picture of God. We have a picture of God that's more informed by wrongly illustrated children's books or you know, pictures on trailer park house walls of, you know, Jesus meek and mild, you know, holding a little lamb and he's got long hair and he looks like a middle-aged white guy, right? Like, like when you read the book of Revelation, it describes him as a warrior king coming on a horse with a sword in his hand and blood on his garments and fire in his eyes. So let's not, let's not limit God to one of his aspects. He is a God of love, but he is a God of righteous justice, And sin will not go unpunished. It would be unjust for sin to go unpunished. If we, and when this happens, we are furious. When we know that there is someone who deserves the full extent of the law brought against them, and a judge, a crooked judge, stands in the way and does not bring justice to bear, there is an outcry on our part. That's inappropriate. That's not okay. Brothers and sisters, you never, ever have to worry about God missing or messing up, or being unjust, or bringing about injustice. He will always bring justice. In this passage, we might be tempted to think that the punishment doesn't match the crime, but let me remind you of an illustration that I've used here a number of times. The the punishment does match the crime because the crime is against God. So, again, I've used this illustration before, but maybe some of you haven't heard this before. But imagine Frank and I are hanging out and we get mad at each other and I punch Frank in the face, right? Like, I shouldn't do that. That's, a, that's bad, right? It's going to end very poorly for me if I did something like that. But let's, I punch Frank in the face. Um, but I probably don't like, have to go to jail, you know, or anything like that. Um, uh, let's say that m- maybe, you know, the chief of police or the, one of the sheriffs, you know, are, are here in town and I punch one of them in the face, so I've done the exact same thing. I've done nothing differently. But am I going to get in more trouble for that? Yeah, absolutely. Imagine our mayor is touring through Dowhart, right? And I walk up to him and punch him in the face. Will I get in more trouble for punching him in the face than for punching a sheriff in the face? Yes. Imagine if our president were touring through Dowhart and I punch him in the face. 
No comments. No comments. No comments. I just need the illustration to work. Okay. Am I going to get in more trouble for punching our president in the face? Yes. In fact, I probably don't live through that encounter, right? I punch, eight bullets are in me, and it's game over. But I've done the exact same thing every single time. What's the difference? It's the, the importance of the person. Now, there, there is no there's a little bit of difference between Frank and the police, you know, police officer and between the police officer and the mayor and between the mayor and the president. There's a little bit of difference. There is, there is an infinite difference between the president and God. It's infinite. And so when I sin against God, my sin is, is infinitely wicked. I haven't just sinned against another person. I've sinned against the infinite, perfectly righteous, holy God. The holy God who created me. The holy God who created me and demanded perfection of me, and I have now sinned against him. I'm a traitor. I'm guilty of treason. And the Bible describes us in Romans chapter 5 as enemies. We don't want him anyway. We have our guns pointed at him. So what does a righteous, good king do with the traitors in his kingdom? Or with the enemies within his kingdom, he eradicates them. And he's good for doing so. He's good and he's just for doing so. So as God is dealing with Egypt, he's not just dealing with a nation of of people who are spiritually neutral. He's dealing with a nation of people who have sinned against him. He's dealing with a nation of people who for 400 years have kept his people in bondage. He's dealing with a man who has a serpent on his crown and stands opposed to everything the one true God stands for and is. So so God is just in bringing punishment and condemnation and this kind of death sentence that everyone will face. Everyone is going to face death. Everyone, you're going to face death. Everyone out there is going to face death. Everyone's going to face death. Those who know Christ as their Savior, those who don't know Christ as their Savior, everyone will face death. The penalty of sin is death. No, uh, there's an excellent little book. Where did I leave it? Did I bring it up here with me? I think I left it in my seat. I'm going to read a quotation from it in just a moment. An excellent little book by... R.C. Sproul just passed away within the last few years uh, called The Holiness of God. I'm going to read to you from that here in just a moment. But Dr. Sproul says this, no innocent people have ever been punished by God. There's no such thing as innocent people. The Bible describes us as being born in sin. And as soon as we have the opportunity in this life, we start sinning. So we're born in sin. We're sinners by birth and by choice. We sin against God. So there's no such thing as God bringing his punishment against someone who doesn't deserve it. In our human state of affairs, we, we can be unjust with each other, and human judges can be unjust, but the God of the universe is never unjust. So it's not amazing that God sends anyone to hell, but it is staggering, it is staggering that God has been patient with anyone. And what happens is we presume upon his patience. For 400 years, Egypt has shaken its fist in the face of God, and God has been patient with Egypt. And now God is going to bring justice against Egypt. And brothers and sisters, friends, there are are people who live this life, and they experience the common grace of God. 
they, they live shaking their fists in the face of God, and they say things like, I'm going to do life my own way. I'm the master of my own ship. I'm not going to submit myself to the crown of Jesus Christ. Like I, I've got this life, and in fact, I'm doing pretty well. I'm going to do life my own way. And God is patient and kind. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he will not be patient forever. And we, confuse, we think since he has been patient and since he has exercise since since he has given us time well he'll just be that way forever like he'll just he's just gonna let everybody I mean, he's a nice guy he's just gonna let everybody into heaven when this is all said and done and the story of exodus should give us very clear understanding that is not the nature of god that is not how god works he is patient and he is slow to anger but there is coming a day where his wrath will be poured out against the sin of those who do not know him as their savior We see patience here, but we also see God bringing justice to the nation of Israel. And brothers and sisters, we see, we see two groups of people, and verse 7 makes it clear that God is doing this to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There is a distinction between God's people and those who are not God's people. And even today, friends, everyone falls into one of two camps. You are either in God's family or you are outside of God's family. There's really only two fundamental distinctions in the, in the world. There's, there's only two groups of people. You know, be like, yeah, men and women. No, no, not men and women. Texans and everyone else. No, that's not it. Like, right? There's a lot of ways that we like to divide things up, but there's only two groups of people. Those who are God's people and those who are outside of God's people. And those who are, those who are God's people are God's people because they are part of the covenant promise that God has made, that those who will come to him in repentance and faith will be covered by the blood. We're going to talk about the Passover a lot next week, so, but let me just give you a little hint. Right? They're going to put the blood over their doorpost. That was, that was beautiful symbolism. That was an exercise of faith for them, and it is beautiful symbolism for us that those who are covered by the blood of Christ will not receive his wrath and his punishment. But those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will receive the full extent of his punishment. And brothers and sisters, here's what that is. This is not very politically correct to say, but the Bible teaches in a literal fiery hell to which God will send people for eternity and they will be conscious and they will be alive and they will know that they're separated from God forever. And I don't preach on that enough, but it's real. And everyone is gonna be either in that group or in the group of those who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is making a clear distinction between the Egyptians and his people. And I think it's fascinating here in verse 7 where it says that he's making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Do you remember the Egyptian god Anubis? Do you remember what kind of what he looked like? I described him just a moment ago. What his head looked like? The head of a dog. Look in verse 7 with me. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. I don't think that's accidental. I think God is saying, you've got that God Anubis who you think is in control, that God who's the God of death who controls who dies and when they die and what happens to them after they die. You've got that dog-faced God in Israel. There's not even going to be a dog that 
barks against my people. I'm going to bring judgment against you and your dog-faced God of death. Meanwhile, a dog's not going to bark against my people. I don't think that's coincidental. I think God is saying, I'm greater than all of your gods. Yep, even the dog-headed one. And I'm okay if that sounds offensive to Anubis. Third thing I want us to notice here. God is always just whether he's bringing grace and mercy or punishment, he's always just. You might be tempted to say God is being fair with Egypt, but he, or with Israel, but he's not being fair with Egypt. He's being, he's being just with, um, with, uh, with Egypt, but he's not being just with Israel because Israel were, were, were sinners as well. No, listen, God is always just because sin always gets punished. Everyone's sins gets punished. And here's where I'm finally going to get to the, the white boy that Justin helped me with. Okay, so here, here we have God. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and this was, this was helpful for me, so I hope it will be helpful to you. And, and, and God, God um, has many, many attributes. I haven't been in Sunday school for the last, Sunday, uh, last couple of weeks because I've been teaching a Sunday school class, but I think Will has at least started covering the attributes of God. Um, and so God is, is love, and God is, is mercy. Let me find something to write with here. God is merciful, and God is, um, is love, and God is all of the omni words, right? Omnipresent, omnipotent, omni, uh, omniscient, thank you. Um, but God, God is all of these things, and God is also just. And like we talked about that judge earlier who would be unjust if he didn't bring punishment against sin, God would be unjust if he didn't bring punishment against sin. And so here's humanity. <clears throat> and, and everyone, everyone has sin. Everyone has sin, right? There's no, there's no one who hasn't sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Jesus says, depart from me, all you workers of lawlessness. So eternal separation from God in a conscious, tormenting hell is the reality for those who have to pay for their own sins. That's, that's the, the, the justice of God. And, the, and we see the justice of God as it's, uh, as it's displayed by his wrath against sin. Moses left Pharaoh in hot anger. Brothers and sisters, again, this is, this is where sometimes we ignore the truth about God, but God is a God who is angry against sin and against the sinners. His, his, his justice demands that he be angry against sin and against sinners. And so God's justice is on display as he pours out his wrath on all humanity. So his wrath is borne is born down on everyone. And that is perfectly just. That, that is what a just judge does. That his, his wrath, this, the punishment, the condemnation is going to come down on all of humanity. Now, amongst humanity, brothers and sisters, there, there are two groups of people. We talk about Egypt and Israel, but even today, there are two groups of people. There are people who are God's people, and there are people who are not God's people. And, and the way that you come into God's people, the way that you come into God's family is by realizing this is where you stand. 
there's a there's a uh, there's an old um, sermon that was preached in the uh, early 1700s by the famous American pastor Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to read a, a couple quotes here in a few minutes from from this sermon. The title of his sermon was this: "The Righteousness of God in the Damnation of Sinners." That's not a. I don't know if that would like make for a great podcast title these days, right? I mean, like that's the righteousness of God and the damnation of sinners. And what Edwards does in that sermon is he clearly explains from the scripture why God is always and absolutely perfectly righteous when he damns a sinner to hell forever. We, we, Damn and hell are probably the most, the most used, what we would call cuss words, right? I mean, th- those are the ones that just get used the most. And, and you know, um, the reason, the reason those words bother me almost as much as anything, is because those words mean something very real and very sobering. It, it doesn't bother me that people cuss. What bothers me is that people being damned to hell is a real thing and no one gives a damn about it. That's what bothers me. So so God is the one. We think we need to be saved from Satan. Do you know what you need to be saved from? The wrath of God. That's what you need to be saved from. You're a sinner against the Almighty. You're down here. You are on your way to hell. I mean, again, I know there are believers in here, but um, we're going to talk about that in a second. So, so th- this is our problem. We didn't become Christians because adding Jesus to our lives would make us more successful. We, you, you come to know Christ as your Savior when you realize, I'm damned to hell because of my sin, and I deserve this. He's not being a meanie. He's not in heaven moody and trying, you know, like, um, I'll, show, I'll show those rascals. No, I deserve this. This is what I earned. This is what my sin against God has earned, the, the, his, his wrath. So, so everyone who receives the wrath of God is, is receiving the just punishment for their sin. But because of his love, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Come on, markers. There we go. That he gave his only son so that whoever trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So here's what happens. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus God is just because sin is being paid for. At the cross, here's what happens. Jesus Christ takes your sin and my sin, and he bears the wrath of God for it. That is just because the sin is being paid for. Those who are outside of Christ, they will receive directly the wrath of God, and they will not be able to endure it. They will be punished for eternity. There are people who have already begun receiving what they... This is not God being unkind or cruel. They are receiving what they earned. We have shaken our fist in the face of God, and so 
They bear the wrath of God themselves. But for those who will turn, who will realize that they are a sinner and put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came. And the reason he, bore, he, he, he hung on the cross was not so that he could get holes in his hands and holes in his feet and somehow um, represent a life of sacrifice that we're supposed to emulate. He was doing something that we couldn't do. He was doing something that only he could do. He was bearing the wrath of God against sin to shield us from that wrath and to then give to us his righteousness. Does that make sense? So God is just. God is just to deal with those who have put faith in Jesus. He's, he's just to deal with them graciously because the sin has been paid for. And he's just to deal with those who are not in Christ with, with wrath directly and punishment directly to them because their sin must be paid for. So do you see, this is the message that we are taking to the world, to those who don't know Christ. Like, I want all these people in here. And so we go with the message and we try to, we try to redeem another and another and another and to bring them under, uh, into, uh, into submission and faith in Jesus Christ. God is always just. If he gives you grace and mercy, it is because he was, he was just with his son, Jesus Christ. And if he gives you eternal wrath, he is being just directly to you. God is always just, even when he is gracious. And lastly, grace, mercy, and justice are seen most clearly at the cross. You want, you want to see grace and justice and mercy clearly? It's actually not most clearly displayed anywhere but at the cross of Jesus Christ. And let me read to you just a quick excerpt from, from uh, R.C. Sproul's book on the holiness of God. The, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain of, uh, to complain of injustice, it was Jesus. If there was ever one person who could complain of injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let's stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. If we have cause for moral outrage, let it be directed at Golgotha. The cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in history. The cross was the most just and the most gracious act in history. God would have been more unjust. Excuse me, God would have been more than unjust. He would have been diabolical to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken on himself the sins of the world. Do you see, Jesus isn't hanging on the cross as the perfectly righteous one. Remember, he has taken upon himself the sins of the world. And if, and if, we are going, if God is going to view us as having the per perfect righteousness of Christ, he must also view his son as having all of our sins. So Jesus bears, uh, takes upon himself all of the sins of mankind. Once Christ had done that, once he had volunteered to be the Lamb of God, laden with our sin, 
then he became the most grotesque and vile thing on this planet. With the concentrated load of sin he carried, he became utterly repugnant to the Father. God poured out his wrath on this obscene thing. God made Christ accursed for the sin he bore. Herein was God's holy justice perfectly manifest. Yet it was done for us. See, remember, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. He took what what justice demanded from us. This for us aspect of the cross is what displays the majesty of its grace. At the same time, justice and grace, wrath and mercy. I love the way he ends this. It's too astonishing to fathom. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm not sure I grasp the significance of that, that's, you're right, that's where you're supposed to be. That's exactly what, there, there is infinite justice and infinite grace and mercy, infinite love on display here. And you and I have finite brains. So nobody in this room is walking out of here this morning going, I got it. I totally understand everything exactly like I got it. But we can leave here this morning marveling in fresh and new ways. I deserve to bear the wrath against my sin myself. But God was just and gracious to his son Jesus. And when I turn my eyes to him in faith and I look to him to be for me what I could not be, for him to live the life I failed to live and for him to take, a, to take the death that I deserve to die. That now, I, now, now his, my sin is given to him and his righteousness is now given to me. What justice is shown to Christ and what grace is shown to us. So brothers and sisters, God is always, always just. He is just in his wrath against sinners. He is just in his grace to his people. And just as there was Egypt and Israel, and God was clearly, verse 7, he wanted to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Brothers and sisters, that distinction is still here today, and it's not Egypt and Israel. It's followers of Jesus Christ and those who reject him as their Lord and Savior. And those who reject him as their Lord and Savior have no plea. They have no excuse. The the judgment that God brought against Egypt, the the death of the firstborn, that punishment of death and eternal separation from, from him will be brought on all those who do not submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. I've tried to explain the justice and the wrath of God as well as I know how to do it this morning. As you, you can see now why I, I started my prayer this morning with God, I, I don't know how to do what you're asking me to do here this morning. Let me read you a couple, a couple of quotations from that sermon I mentioned earlier, the righteousness of God and the damnation of sinners. Edward says this, For though it would be righteous in God forever to cast you off and destroy you, yet it would also be just in God to save you in and through Christ, who has made complete satisfaction 
for all sin. He also says, you who are a Christless sinner, you are poor, you're a poor condemned creature, God's wrath still abides upon you and the sentence of condemnation lies upon you. You are in God's hands and it is certain what he will do with you. You are afraid of what will become of you. You are afraid that it will be your portion to suffer eternal burnings. And your fears are not without grounds. You have reason to tremble every moment. But be you never so much afraid. Let eternal damnation be never so dreadful. Yet it is just. God may nevertheless do it and be righteous and holy and glorious. Though eternal damnation be what you cannot bear and how much your heart sinks at the thought of it, yet God's justice may be glorious in it. The dreadfulness of the thing on your part and the greatness of your dread of it do not render it less righteous in God's part. If you think otherwise, it is a sign that you do not see yourself, that you are not sensible of what sin is or how much of it you have been guilty of. If you're here this morning and you have never turned to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Let me call upon you this morning to leave what is certainly true of you. You will receive eternal punishment through the wrath of God. For those of you who have turned to Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior, let me, let me, re, let me remind you. Let, let, I mean, let's just let's glory in how good the good news is. I think we, I, I really do. I fall into this trap. I think sometimes I think God saved me because I'm a pretty good guy and I deserved it. That's a lie. That is not true. I deserved punishment. God in his grace and his kindness draw me to G, drew me to Jesus Christ. I am now part of Israel, if you will, using the, the illustration from, from Exodus chapter 11. And if you're here this morning and you aren't trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you can right there in your seat right now Simply call out to him, forgive me of my sins. I'm putting my faith in you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm trusting in what Jesus did by taking your wrath. And I want to follow him. There's no formulaic prayer that you have to pray exactly. It's faith in what Jesus did. It's a, the abandoning of your own way and putting faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm going to invite the music team to come up. If anybody would like to talk with me at, at further about any of this after the service, I'd be more than happy to visit with you. I do not have God nor his justice and grace figured out completely, but I do know that he has made it clear in his scripture how we can receive his grace Next week, we're going to look at it was the blood of lambs slain. It was the blood of a substitute that protected Israel from the judgment of Egypt. Every week, we remind ourselves that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that protects us from the wrath of God. Let's stand, and I'll pray, and then uh, we'll sing, and then I think Will will come and close our service. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I pray that today they would turn from their sins and put faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.